I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many Sydney ciders, like me, have come across the food produced by a group called the 12 Tribes through their market stalls and bakeries under the name Common Ground or their cafe in Katoomba called the Yellow Deli. When I moved in with a boyfriend in Roselle in my early 20s, he raved about the bread from their store down the road from us, though that one's no longer around. Others will have come across them serving from the historic Razorback Inn in Picton and events like the Easter Show or the Newtown Festival. A post from 2011 on the popular Weekend Notes website says, The Common Ground Cafe has had its share of media-related controversy, as it is run by a religious community whose mysteriously standoffish ways freak some people out. Do not be deterred by that, as no one will try to convert you, and the food is truly delicious. If you're curious, just ask them. I'd suggest listening to Tim Elliott's new podcast, Inside the Tribe, before you follow this advice. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to trauma, emotional abuse, and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of child abuse and stillbirth. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. Tim Elliott is a senior writer for The Good Weekend, a beloved Saturday magazine for many Australian readers. He's won two Kennedy Awards and been nominated for a Walkley, with his work appearing in publications all over the world, including London's Financial Times and Sunday Times. Tim is also the author of three books, The Bolivian Times, Spain by the Horns, and his memoir Farewell to the Father, about growing up with an unpredictable parent suffering from mental illness. Tim first wrote about Matthew Klein's story of exiting the 12 tribes back in 2007, and then about another family's experience with the group in 2013. His new podcast, Inside the Tribe, digs into much more of theirs and other accounts, and it launches next week. Tim was kind enough to sit down with me for a chat about it. 
Tim, Elliot, thank you so much for joining me today. First up, for audience members who may not be familiar, can you give me a brief overview of who and also where the 12 tribes are? Sure. Thanks, Sarah, for having me on. Yeah, well, the 12 tribes is a Christian fundamentalist sect with communities all over the world, including in Australia, where they have a small group just outside of Sydney. So they're a, they're a small group. There's only about 3,000, 4,000 them worldwide, but they have an incredibly powerful sway over their followers. So they're what some people have called a, a teeth, hair and eyeballs cult, meaning they control every part of you. So when you join, when people join, they encourage you to hand over all your possessions, all your money. They give you a new name, new clothes, a new identity. After a time, you're encouraged to stop having anything to do with your old family or old friends on the outside. In the podcast, we talk to people who have been moved around the world to escape their families and also the authorities. So it's very, it's a very isolated cult they don't take part in the modern world at all really they don't watch tv or listen to the radio they don't read books that aren't approved they don't uh, read newspapers or magazines or go to schools outside schools or even vote so they're they're very isolated indeed so yeah it's a pretty intense pretty intense group sure and how, how did the story come onto your plate what made you decide to make a podcast about it Okay, so I was working for the Sydney Morning Herald. I'm a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald with Good Weekend Magazine, which is a Saturday magazine for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age newspapers. I first heard about them in about 2008, so a long time ago, when a guy called, Australian guy called Matthew Klein came to me with a story. I think I did a story about, first off, I did a story about deprogrammers, so, which was something that just interests me, about, about um, people who get people out of cults, extract people. And on the back of that story, this guy, Matt Klein, contacted me and he said, oh, wow, do I have a story for you. I was a member of this group called the 12 Tribes and they flew me and my family all around the world. They worked us like slaves. They brainwashed us. They took away our independence and our, um, our livelihoods. They basically dominated every part of our lives. Now, he had managed to escape with his three young children, but... In the process of that, his wife decided to stay behind with the group. Now Matt doesn't even know where she is. The kids don't see her at all. Something about that story, there was something about that story that was incredibly touching for me, really powerful, probably the fact that a mother had decided to abandon her children for the group. That was incredibly sad. It's really rare for a parent, let alone a mother, to give up their kids. I thought, wow, this group must have something they must have a super powerful hold on these people. And so I went from there and then subsequently Matt put me in touch about maybe 10 years later with another Sydney couple, Mark and Rose, whose story we explore in the podcast, who would also be members of the 12 tribes and whose story is just mind-blowing. I mean, what they went through and the story of how they got out is quite something else. Right. I've listened to the first few episodes. I've been very lucky to get a little preview, so I can't wait to hear the rest of it. And the, I think when you spoke to one of the daughters whose mother was still in there, it was just so heartbreaking to hear her talk about that and how it's impacted her entire life. Oh, for e forever. I mean, it just, 
she was telling me why this is Matt Klein's daughter, who we who plays a really important part in the in the podcast in in extracting Mark and Rose from the cult. But I won't go into that. That's in the, in the podcast. But anyway, she she told me about the fallout from her experience and the fact you know for years and years she was like, why after leaving after her mother decided to stay with the group and so she lost contact with her mother. And for years afterwards, she was like, well, what is it? You know, why did my mum choose this bunch of stra- essential, essentially strangers over me? Why, why, why did she abandon me? What had I done wrong? And she was really just kind of riven with guilt and longing and it broke her, really broke something inside of her, the fact that her own mother had had left her, had decided to leave her. That's part of the reason I find these groups sort of morbidly fascinating. I think the power they have over people psychologically is just incredible. I understand that and have spent (laughs) many years now in this world for for much the same reasons. And everything you've mentioned, you know, sounds pretty heavy and full-on and negative, but I do think a lot of people might understand the appeal of a self-sustaining community who works to grow their own food and supports each other to live in harmony, especially growing up in a pretty full-on capitalist society, which sometimes feels pretty dog-eat-dog. So I just wondered if you could tell me a bit about what drew people in, the people that you spoke with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really important to note that no one, no one joins a cult. So no one wakes up one day and says, I'm going to join a cult that will steal all my money, manipulate my mind, beat my children, separate me from my birth family and friends. What they join is something, is an ideal of something that's way better than what they have. So they, like you said, with the 12 tribes, they most of the people who joined were attracted to the fact that this group were apart from society and were separate from that capitalist paradigm that we all live in, you know, that dog-eat-dog mentality where you you get up, you slave away, you're essentially working for yourself and battling away. It can be a hard life. Now, Mark and Rose, as well as all the other members we spoke to, found themselves really drawn to this idyllic lifestyle that the tribes presented on the outside, their public-facing image was of an idyllic kind of utopia where they lived on a farm in harmony with nature, where you grew crops, um, tended sheep, you basically raised everything in common, you raised your children communally and took care of everybody, took care of one another, like like a large family in essence. And so what's not to like? So this is why people join and some most of the people we talked to did form during their time in the group did form really wonderful connections to people. They found other like-minded members who had also come to the group looking for something better, belonging, communion, a sense of being there for other people and achieving a deeper, deeper mission. And it's also important to note, I reckon, that sometimes inevitably, as you'd probably know, most people, most people come across groups from what I've found. They come across groups like this at a moment in their lives when they're somehow vulnerable. So they're in between, they're in between jobs. They've just gone through a really hard patch. They don't have a job. They're, they're confused about who they are. Maybe they've lost a, a bunch of friends. Maybe they've just arrived in the country. They don't have anywhere to live. 
maybe they're just going through a personal crisis. So they, these people are usually at a juncture in their life where they're vulnerable. And so what happens is they just happen to cross paths with this group, a high-control group, a, a cult, for want of another word, who offer them a solution and offer them an answer to all their problems that they have at that moment. So when you look at it that way, joining a cult, per se, is not a matter of, you know, a lot of people's really bad judgment. Why do these people join these groups? They don't join these groups willingly. They, and, and often what it is is a matter of bad timing as much as and bad luck. They meet these groups at a moment when they're really vulnerable. And in that sense, it's a, a matter of bad luck than, than anything else that they join. Yeah, that's what I always say too. It's um, a lot of people think that it's vulnerable or naive people who join these groups, but actually they're at a vulnerable point in their lives. And that's something that happens to every single one of us. Every single. So it's like, and if you look at your life, everybody's life, everybody goes through a period where they're vulnerable. I don't care who they are, where they're confused, vulnerable, weak, and they really, really longing after something, after an answer or something deeper, a sense of belonging. So in that sense, it's just everybody could join a group like this. People who say, oh, I would never do that, they're kidding themselves. Totally agree. And even the word vulnerable is kind of interesting because I look at it also as like often it's someone who is going to university, so they've moved out of home and they're just like reassessing what their purpose is. It's at a point in your life where you're looking to give it purpose to. You're vulnerable to falling into something. Yeah. But you're not, it's not necessarily a, a vulnerable state. It's looking to dedicate yourself to something can be quite an admirable quality if you happen to come across something else at that time. Totally. A lot of the members told me that, you know, the reason they joined was because they were idealistic. Is there anything wrong with being idealistic? So they saw this beautiful, what they believed to be a beautiful solution to modern life and the dilemmas of modern life, and they went for it. There's no crime in being idealistic. And actually, if some of that idealism were harnessed by something that wasn't a destructive high control group, it would really be contributing wonderful things to society. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so from your interviews, it sounded to me like community members in the 12 tribes actually ended up working a lot harder and longer hours than most of the rest of us do, which kind of, I guess, might not be what, what you would expect if it was an escape from the capitalist rat race. Yeah, yeah, this is the, yes, this is the, the dichotomy and, the, and the, um, yes, the, the dream they sell, the lie they sell, essentially. So members of the group all work for free. So no one, get paid, no one gets paid a cent. All right? And they work really, really hard. That's really important to remember that, to realise that the 12 tribes has, have plenty of businesses all around the world. So they own bakeries, restaurants, cafes, demolition companies, renovation companies, soap factories, all sorts, everything, all sorts of companies around the world, right? And they sell here in Australia, they sell food at festivals like the Royal Easter Show and the Woodford Folk Festival and they worked at the Sydney Olympic Games. You know, they can make half a million dollars a week from these two these festivals, right? Now that the tribes members work at, at these festivals, they work at all of the group's companies and it's grueling. Like they might work twelve or fifteen hour days and they might they might sleep on the floor of the bakeries in in some of the cases we found out about. So their work is extremely hard and they never see a cent, they never get paid anything because they're not classified as workers. So the group never classifies their members as staff or workers, right? It's obviously extremely exploitative, but they get away with it. 
So what are they classified as, if not workers? They're classified as volunteers, as readers. They're classified as people who volunteered to, to do this work. And I guess in a sense they did. They joined and they joined this idea. They, they went in for this idea, like we were saying, that was a beautiful concept of everybody working together. So everybody working together involves for no for no reward other than the rewards offered offered by faith and and by Jesus. So they don't get paid anything. So they they're exploited. So they're exploited by these groups. And fair work, there's an argument and a little bit of questioning about why fair work in Australia has never really investigated a case that we know of. And I think maybe that's because for for several reasons. I think people inherently, and this is the police as well, believed that they joined this group of their own free will, which in a sense they did, right? So they, it's not like society owes them an answer or owes them, you know, fair work shouldn't go into bat for them because they joined, they willingly joined. Also because I think in many cases government bodies don't want to get involved with religious groups in a sense unless there's really, really powerful evidence of abuse, which is something we touch on in the, in the podcast. And also I think that someone needs to bring a case against the tribes, right? So someone who has been exploited, a former member, has to go to Fair Work and follow that case through, press a case against the tribes. A lawyer has to take up their case. That lawyer has to be paid. Uh, What we've found is that when people come out of the group, they're psychologically and physically exhausted. They don't have the wherewithal really to follow it up and they... In many cases, they want to just leave that chapter of their lives behind. Yeah, that is totally understandable. There's been a recent case in New Zealand with a group called Gloria Vale where they had previously been found to not be employees, quite similar to the 12 tribes in Australia. And then, in fact, in Courage versus the Attorney General, the Employment Court found earlier this year that community members were, in fact, employees. So I think mm. it would be a really interesting case if it were to be taken yeah, it would be, and it would it would have all sorts of implications for this group. Uh, a lot of people would be owed a lot of money, but the problem is that the way they another problem for former members who would try and claw back some of their money is that the tribes have very cleverly structured their affairs financially, as we discovered, to make it quite hard for for people to access any money once they leave. Mm-hmm. One thing I always thought, seeing the common ground bakeries and stalls around the place and the Yellow Deli Cafe, was that members of the 12 tribes must all at least eat incredibly well. The food's always amazing in there. Yeah. 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 Can you tell me what you found out about this? That's really funny you say that because a lot of when I was, when people say, what's the podcast about? And I'm like, oh, this group called the 12 tribes. They're like, oh, I know that group. Wow. In Katoomba, they have this, this amazing cafe and the food is just mind-blowing beautiful muffins and wonderful meals and stuff and i'm like "Mm." and so as we yeah as people always say that but the truth is that the members themselves who are on the inside as part of the group they often eat really badly so the diet inside the tribes is extremely bad because what they're doing is they're keeping all the wonderful food that they grow all the wonderful organic fresh organic food that they grow and then they cook they're keeping that to sell, not for the members to eat. So in America, we spoke to members who were given buckets of old carrots to eat, you know, one chicken between 30 people. 
boxes of slimy potatoes. And that's because the leadership want to make money off running these cafes. Obviously, no one's going to buy crappy food. So they keep all the really nice food to sell to the public. That's the public-facing side of the group, the Disney version of the 12 tribes, all the beautiful food for their stalls and the cafes. Some of the people we spoke to, you know, their teeth had fallen out, their hair was falling out, their skin was terrible, the diet was so bad. You know, the tribes have a very high rate of stillbirths, a much higher rate than normal of stillbirths, babies being born dead. And that's because it's thought to be one outcome of their of their really bad diet. Mm. Australians may recall news headlines in 2020 about police digging for the buried remains of stillborn children at 12 tribes properties. And I, I found it difficult to figure out what had happened with that. I wondered if you knew anything about where that stood today. Not really. Whenever you get in touch with the cops, they just say, oh, the investigation is ongoing. That's all they ever tell you. It's all you mm-hmm. ever, it's impossible to find anything else. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So bottom line is nothing. No. Right. A question former members of high demand groups face a lot is, why didn't you leave? What things make it hard for someone to leave the 12 tribes? Okay, a whole bunch of reasons, right? And I'm sure that these reasons are very common across the board, that they're particularly pronounced with the tribes. Okay, so when you join the tribes, you leave your family behind, you leave your possessions behind, you leave your friends on the outside behind, you leave your job. Every part of joining is that you give it up. And when you are part of the tribes, you you withdraw from outside society, normal society in air quotes. You aren't allowed to handle money. You don't earn a wage. You don't have a bank account or a mortgage or a phone plan. Uh, if you decide to, after 10 years, to leave, you come out and you have to start your entire life from scratch. You have to get your kids into school, you have to find a place to live, you don't have any money because you haven't been paid a wage, you don't have a bank account, all of that, you've got nothing. Another really important factor is fear, right? From day one, the kids in the tribes are told that the outside world is inherently evil and that people out there are out to get you and that if you leave, you know, There's common lines. You'll die in a car crash. Uh, You'll become gay. You'll turn gay, which is the worst thing ever for them. Or you'll be condemned forever to what they call the lake of fire, which is, you know, what it sounds like, eternal damnation and pain. So the kids who are brought up there and also the adults are terrified of leaving. Why would you leave when you have nothing to leave for on the outside? Everything is taken care of for you inside the cult, even if life's terrible. You know what it is. If you leave, you don't know what you're getting into. You're walking into some of the former members we talked to were like, you know, it was like re-entering orbit at, you know, a million miles an hour, you know, with no handrails. You know, terrifying, terrifying for them. That's one thing I think about a lot is if we as a society have decided to not kind of do anything about these groups and say that you chose to join and we're, you know, the police don't do anything, the government doesn't do anything, it's religious freedom. The least that we could do is provide support services for people who come out of such groups to be able to help them adjust back into society. And I think it's pretty shocking that there's nothing on offer. No, there's nothing. There's very little sympathy for people who come out 
very little, they're just thrown to the wolves in many ways. Mm. And I don't know whether that's a deficit of sympathy or empathy or people just don't have enough time and they're like, I don't know, it's, it's sad. I think there's still quite a lack of understanding about what's happened, but there's a lot more discussion these days about coercive control and hopefully that's going to help people have a greater understanding of the dynamics at play. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lack of understanding about the psychological dynamics and the pressure that people are under when they join and all of the stuff that goes on within these groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What can you tell me about the difficulties in speaking out for those who have family involved with the 12 tribes? Yeah, well, what we found was that because because the members have been taken out or they separate themselves or they are separated by the leaders from society, right, they, they are given new names, new identities, they withdraw from their old family. To maintain contact for the parents or the family members on the outside trying to maintain contact with them in the cult, everything is mediated by the cult. All the contact has to be, you have to go through that cult. They're the gatekeepers, right? So you don't get to, they don't have a phone. They don't, they don't leave the compound of their own free will. So you can't get to them if not through the leadership, okay? So, and the leadership obviously don't like people speaking out against them. So what often happens is that if you speak out against the cults, a group, groups like this, especially the tribes, you just get cut off. Parents who speak out against tribes, people, their loved ones who are within the tribes, simply lose contact with them. They've simply lost contact, been cut off with their loved ones who are inside the group. In some cases, they, one woman, one mother, was really sad. She was trying to stay in contact with her son and her family, Matt Kleiner was. The group got work at the Sydney Olympic Games and Many of the parents of the members wrote to the organising committee of the Olympic Games, said, how can you give this group any work? How can you let them work at the Olympic Games? They're a highly destructive, high-control group. The 12 tribes found out that the parents had written to the Olympic Games organisers and ratted on them and complained about them. So the next thing the parents know is that the kids are just being sent off overseas. So it's terrifying. Your kids and your grandkids are suddenly flown overseas. And often you don't know where they're going. So to speak out against the group is really dangerous. So that's why we found it very hard to find ones who were, who were willing to be really brave and speak out. They didn't want to lose contact with their loved ones, their kids, their grandkids. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In Australia, it remains legal for a parent or carer to smack their child, though the extent to which corporal punishment is allowed is limited to the rather open term reasonable, which is more defined in some states and less defined in others. How do you think the 12 tribes' attitude towards corporal punishment differs from the general expectations of mainstream Australian society? Okay, so the 12 tribes don't tolerate any misbehaviour in their children. And I mean none. If the kids don't do exactly what an adult tells them, and it can be any adult, not just their parents, any adult around them in the community, they are beaten severely with a stick. And they can be beaten for not eating their food 
for playing a game or singing a song that isn't approved by the elders or for not working hard enough or for not coming to them, coming to an adult when they're called, and they can be beaten severely. Like we have heard multiple stories of kids being beaten overseas, being beaten till they were red raw for, say, eight hours, a two-year-old getting beaten for eight hours in one case. Kids being older kids, you know, six-year-olds being beaten close to death. In Germany, they, the, the authorities there staged an intervention. They raided one of their compounds because they got evidence that the kids in Germany, like 300 kids, were being beaten severely, and it's illegal in, in Germany to smack your kids. Police went in. They took away hundreds of kids, and then there was this very long, ongoing case against the parents where they were trying to, trying to get their kids. We talk about that in the, in the podcast. So... It's really important and interesting reason why they do this, why they're so strict on their kids. Part of the 12 tribes' belief is that they are raising their religious philosophy, theology, is that they're raising a pure-born breed of 144,000 male children who during Armageddon will go out and save the world by waging war on Satan. So to raise that army of pure male children, warriors, young warriors, they have to teach them complete obedience and it's up to the tribes to raise that army themselves out of their own own children. That's why they don't tolerate any answering back, no disobedience at all. So it has really ugly, ugly fallout and side effects for those children. Yeah, of course it does. And you mentioned that these are only male children, and I wondered if you could tell me a bit about the attitudes of women in the tribes. Oh, they beat all their kids. <laughs> Sorry, the attitudes towards women. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. The, it's very, you know, it's really weird. It's a bit like the Amish. It's very much the males are the head of the household, right? So all the elders are men. The elders of the community are men, obviously. The men call the shots. Women don't have an equal say in anything. A women have to do all the home duties, all the old-fashioned kind of stuff you, you expect, kid mining, washing, cooking, all that stuff. They are meant to be completely obedient and subservient to their, to their husbands and indeed any male in the community. It's, again, it's a bit like, you know what really reminded me of? It reminded me of Margaret Atwood's book, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, very old fundamentalist old world view of women's place in society scary yeah this is something that gets me about so many of these groups is that they exist in a place like australia where we say that we have gender equality and we believe in gender equality but we just turn a blind eye when you've got a group that treats women like total second class citizens total second class citizens There's also really interesting aspects of the way they treat black people overseas in America. It's really African-Americans are tolerated in the group, but they must, and this is coming from a guy who we talked to who was half Cherokee, half African-American, who joined and left after a while, just severely psychologically damaged. But the attitude there is that, yeah, black people can be part of the tribes, but they've got to realise that they're subservient, really. They're places to be subservient. And, you know, it's a, it's a testament to the mind control that this group has that, yeah, they do get, you know, African-Americans join. You know, indeed women join. You know, they, the appeal of this group is so strong. 
it's quite it's quite a trick. Mm. With all of this money and you know not paying any of the the labour or anything like that, where is all this money going? What are they doing with it? Uh, they're buying properties. They own houses in Australia and all over the world. They many many houses in America. A lot of the money goes back to America, where the cult is headquartered. And there are reports that the former leader, a guy called Eugene Spriggs, who died last year. You know, there are reports of him travelling around, enjoying a lovely life, staying in mansions that the tribes own all around the world. The tribes also own a, a yacht, two yachts actually, I believe, one super luxury yacht that is often stayed on by, by the leaders. So there's lots of properties, they own lots of businesses, they run all their business behind a trust. So the money's going, the money's there. <laughs> it's not going away. It's just that the tribes members themselves don't see any of it. Yep. So Inside the Tribe is out on Monday the 28th of November. And I know Let's Talk About Sects listeners will be very interested in the subject this podcast explores. Can you tell our audience a bit about what they can expect from the show? Okay, so the podcast follows a Sydney couple called Mark and Rose and their their young family, their beautiful young family, whose time with the tribes was they joined in the mid-90s. They got out, took them 13 years to get out, and their time with the tribes was horrific, bizarre, and, you know, just an absolutely riveting story, incredible story of survival and, and also love. Like one of the things that really blew me away is how much Mark and Rose love one another and how they managed to cling on to that love uh, for each other and for their family that that finally managed to see them escape. So it's it's all about that. It's a fantastic podcast. I can't wait to hear the rest of it. Thank you very much, Tim, for your work on this really important story and for speaking to me about it today. Yeah, no problem. That's wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Be sure to listen to Inside the Tribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say. The link's in the show notes. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and produced by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. A very special thanks to Tim Elliott for speaking with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au 
and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.